Good morning, everyone. Thank you, music team. That was wonderful. Um, I was grateful to hear that good song that set this sermon up well. Um, Because this week I had this odd dream. Um, Even though I never listened to this man and my parents never listened to this man, I never heard a song by him recently. For some reason, Smokey Robinson made a cameo in my dreams this week. And so I had this irrational fear all week that uh, Dave and Lori would come up with fears of a, tears of a clown, and I didn't know what to do with that. Um, so that was a much better song than I was thinking. So this morning, we're going to talk about prayer. Um, and you'll see in your bulletin, I uh, encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 6. And as you do that, I just want to, uh, your compass, um, I want to just pull out again that compass insert just to remind you one thing I mentioned last week, we'll mention again, uh, of special note that next Sunday starts our new round, our summer series for summer, uh, Sunday school, uh, both at 9, 15, 11, a gospel project, a new round starts of that, a new section of it. So if you haven't been in there, or you've missed out recently, come back in. To, the lessons are isolated week by week, so you can come in without missing a beat and join right in. I strongly encourage you to do that. Or doing something a little bit different this summer, we are doing a men's only and a women's only uh, Sunday school class at 9.15 starting next week. You'll see the information there. So really encourage you to pick one of those classes and go to those and commit yourself. Even if you have to miss once or twice in the summer for vacation, it's a good habit to be in, not just to learn, though that's wonderfully important, the Bible, but also to fellowship with different types of people. So encourage you, take this home, think about it, and commit yourself to that. Also, just a quick note, we are um, going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, but the information's wrong in the compass about the page number. So if you're in Judges, we're taking a week off of Judges, come back to that next week. But the page number, if you're using a Pew Bible, is page 811. I encourage everyone, whether you have your own Bible or the Pew Bible, to pull open uh, page 811 in, in the Pew Bible, uh, in Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 5 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Follow along. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the wonderful, amazing privilege to talk to you. You're holy and perfect, and we are so not. And we thank you that you allow us, and not just allow us, Lord, you care. You want us to talk to you, and we're thankful that we can do this now. So we ask you, Lord, with this privilege, 
and your spirit to be with us this morning. Shape our thoughts. Hold back our worries for the rest of this day and week. Cast our concerns upon you and shape what we think is important, Lord, as we think about the prayer of your great son, Jesus. Help us, Lord. Be with my words, they may be clear and faithful, Lord, and be with all of our hearts and minds, being ready to listen to you and respond with faithfulness and obedience and repentance. We thank you, Lord. Amen. It will be helpful to have the compass on the back, and and perhaps, uh, I think it's a good suggestion to take a pen out or a pencil in front of you, beside you, and take some notes. It's a really good way to actively listen, to keep into it. This morning, as I said, we're talking on prayer, and we're talking on prayer through the lens of the Lord's Prayer. And I have to make admission to you here, all right, right this first part, to say that this has been one of the toughest sermon preps I've ever had, or at least for some time now. And maybe it's because the pressure I put on myself when I was charged to preach on prayer, I thought to myself, well, prayer is the most basic thing in the Christian life, but it's probably for most of us one of the hardest things, isn't it? Who here doesn't think they need to be encouraged on in prayer? And I thought, boy, what can I say in 25 or so minutes to help someone? Or perhaps it was the pressure because I knew that I was preaching on the Lord's Prayer that what could I add to the annals of the sermons and the studies to say something fresh about this great prayer of Jesus? But as I thought about it, even into this morning, I realized that I think I know why this sermon prep has been so hard. It's because the Lord's Prayer has been so very confronting to me this week. So very challenging for me. Is that what you think about when you think about the Lord's Prayer? I didn't. Actually, I spent most of the last few weeks asking people, saying, you know what, give me your gut reaction when I say the Lord's Prayer. You know, what, what do you think about? And it was pretty much everyone fell into one or two groups. One group was, ah, uh, yeah, that's the prayer we would pray each week when I grew up in church. We'd just say it, you know, just say it out every single week. We said the Lord's Prayer. And then another group of people said, ah, that's the prayer those people said when they grew up in church. We didn't do that because we didn't want to fall into dead spirituality repeating rote prayers and sayings. So when I was charged with preaching the Lord's Prayer, I thought that my, my initial thought was like, well, I'll go through the, line, sir, uh, the prayer line by line and hopefully say something helpful to spur us on to some better prayers for people of both experiences. Shame on me for underestimating God's powerful word, for underassuming what I thought was just a nice, quaint part of the Bible that's been repeated hundreds and thousands of times by millions of people through the age of Christianity Shame on me for underestimating it. Because if you were asking me the question I ask everybody else now, Marty, what is your gut reaction when you think about the Lord's Prayer? My response is this. Ah, that's the prayer that reminds me that I'm such a great sinner in need of repentance. That's the prayer that spurred me on to believe the gospel ever more thoroughly and faithfully. See, what I'm saying is that the Lord's Prayer this week put me in the room of mirrors. I picked up that expression from my Australian friends. They say, they use it as an expression to say that the room of mirrors is where you go to have a long, hard look at yourself. Because as you would guess, if you've been into the room of mirrors lately in a fun house, (laughs) um, I'm not sure who would be, but just in case, um, you know, you go and you look in this room and no matter where you look, you can't help but see yourself or another angle 
of this place. There's no place in the room where you can look and you don't see a view of yourself. And as you can probably guess by looking at me, I'm no fan of mirrors. I don't really like what I see from any angle in this room of mirrors. And that's what the Lord's Prayer did for me this week. It made me have a good, hard look at myself. Every part of this passage put me in a spot that examined not just my prayer life, but my deepest desires down to the very core of who I am and what I want of this life. So let's use the Lord's Prayer in this way, as a mirror to compare what we think versus what we see in the prayer. And we'll have three comparisons here this morning. The, the, the room of mirrors will make us compare our prayers versus Jesus' prayer here. It will make us compare our wants versus Jesus' wants and make us compare our kingdom versus his kingdom. So first, our prayers versus his prayers. You'll see that in verses five through eight. Have you ever noticed there, looking down in verses five through eight, that the Lord's prayer is actually a reactionary prayer or a prayer that Jesus says, don't pray like those people, instead pray like this? What's going on here is Jesus is pointing out two kinds of people who are praying two kinds of ways, and he says, do not pray like them. Don't do it that way. There in verse 8, you'll see, do not be like them. John Stott says it's actually not just a summary of the, this section, but actually a great summary of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Do not be like them. And who are the people we're not supposed to be like? Well, there in verses 5 and 7, it's clear. We're not supposed to be like the hypocrites, Or the Gentiles there in verse 7. Well, how do the hypocrites pray? We see it's very clear there. They love to pray out in front of people, whether in church or out in public, on the street corners or some public gathering, so that everyone can hear their eloquent words, their wonderful phrasing. It's interesting here to just take note that Jesus isn't warning against those who don't pray and telling them to pray, though that is a good warning. Jesus' warning here is against those who do pray, but don't really mean it. They don't really think anything's really going on spiritually, relationally, beyond the people in front of them. They were praying, as it says there, to get the praise of man. Brothers and sisters, be careful because how easily we fall into that same trap. Which of us do not like to hear when someone says, boy, you're just a wonderful prayer. But that prayer was so amazing. Boy, I wish I could pray like you. I wish I had your spirituality. See, these hypocrites appear to be talking to God, but in reality, who are they talking to? The humans around them. And Jesus says, indeed, they will get a reward for doing this so well, but the reward will come from them and not from the heavenly father. So Jesus here isn't just telling everybody, hey, get praying. Jesus wants a sincere prayer life. And to safeguard that sincerity, that's why he goes on to tell them there in verse six, he commends to them the practice of private prayer, or as like the old King James says, go into your prayer closet. And of course, I don't think that's a prescription to be literal because Jesus didn't do that. He prayed publicly and so lots of other people in the gospels. But his point there is to safeguard the sincerity, to make sure no matter where you pray, whether private or in public, no matter who you're with, that you're actually only ever praying to an audience of one, and that's your heavenly father. 
Or perhaps another modern parallel of this, this problem of praying like the hypocrites is how many times do you default, especially on a Sunday morning, how many times do you default into your prayer talk? You're out in the hall in the coffee room with someone and they're telling you something really hard going on in their life and what do you say? Oh, I'll pray for you on that. Right? But it's hypocritical, right? Many times it's hypocritical because why? We don't actually pray for them. It's just saying something to make them feel better and to make you sound eh, maybe a bit more spiritual. But in reality, nothing's going on. Or even the times I've caught myself doing this. Someone recommended me once to avoid that problem. They said, Marty, instead of telling someone you'll pray for them, just stop right there and pray for them in the moment. And I think that's a great practice to do. And I encourage lots of people to do it here at church. But Jesus says, be careful. I want sincere prayer. Are you just praying to check the box so you can say you did it and move on with your life? Are you sincerely like care for this person and care that your father wants to hear? It appears so godly and so helpful, but it just becomes a religious ritual. The second group of people, Jesus commends us not to pray like this reactionary prayer is he says, do not pray like the Gentiles. He said, the first group, the hypocrites, they know God, but want to impress those around them. They're really praying to, hum- praying to humans, as I said. This group in verse 7 here, the Gentiles, they're different. They don't really know God. They don't understand his character and who he is. But they're trying to impress some vague deity with their eloquent prayers, their long prayers, heaping word upon word upon word, spending hours in prayer just hoping that that will impress a God. And that will make a difference for them to get what they really want. To get God's favor on their side. And maybe you think, well, that's not me. I don't do that. But I do sometimes think we bind us more than we originally think. How many times have you been impressed by the stories that you hear about Christians in other countries spending three, three hours a day praying for revival? Or I remember in college hearing that famous quote that we're not really sure Martin Luther ever said. But Luther, in theory, said this. He says, I spend an hour every day in prayer, except on really busy days. Those are days I spend two. And I remember being cut to the core about that thinking, that boy, you know, subtly just thinking, even subconsciously, that boy, if I just pray long enough, and I just pray for enough straight days in a row, that God will be impressed and listen to me more than he otherwise would. No, that is not sincere prayer, Jesus says. As he says right there in this passage, God already knows what you need before you ask him. You don't have to worry about elongated prayers, thinking that you have to say everything. Jesus says, go to God, the God who loves you and cares for you and knows you, offering up straightforward, simply put, prayer requests, because he wants to love his children. And that's why we start the Lord's Prayer with the Our Father. It's a relationship that I want to talk to my Father about these things, not just hoping if I do this, this, or that, he'll bless me. So Jesus here, and just in the context of the Lord's Prayer, in our room of mirrors, we see such a contrast between our prayers and his prayer. Our prayers is a subtle way to get the genie out of the bottle. His prayers are succinct, and sincere based on the relationship with their heavenly father. Now that's the first angle. That's the first way we see 
This room of mirrors really convict us and help us. But it's the second one that really got me this week, and that's in verses 9 through 10. When we see Jesus' wants versus our wants, verses 9 through 10. It's that part of the room in the mirror this week, room of mirrors where I realize there's really no easy way out. I look around and I can't get out as much as I want. This is so convicting. Because when I read this over and over again, and I said the Lord's Prayer this week, I kept asking myself, Marty, what do you really want in life? I mean, really want in life. Because it's here in the Lord's Prayer that I see what Jesus really wants in life. Now, we could rightly break up this, this short two passages here into actually many sermons and a sermon series. I've heard lots of people to break it down to do the Our Father one week and Hallowed Be Your Name in another week. And those are right and good. In one sense, at some point, we should do that. But in another sense, what Jesus is saying, he's saying one thing, saying it many different ways here. The core, the core request in this part of the Lord's Prayer is there in verse 9. Jesus wanted his father's name to be hallowed. Now, because that is the core request here in these two verses, let's just make sure we know what the word hallowed means. I mean, I remember growing up praying the Lord's Prayer each and every week when I was really little, I thought the Lord's name was Howard. Because every week I would say, our father in heaven, Howard be your name. I thought it was a weird way to say it, but Howard it was. Uh, As I got older, I realized it wasn't Howard, it was Hallowed. The problem is it didn't really help me because I don't know what Hallowed means. Who uses that term outside the Lord's Prayer? So let's make sure we really understand what we're saying. What's it mean to make someone's name Hallowed? What simply means to make that name holy. Now, maybe that doesn't advance the cause much. What's it mean to make someone's name holy? Well, it simply means, holy just means to say, let's make your name special. Set apart, precious, great, unique, one of a kind. So when Jesus teaches us to ask our Father in heaven, Lord, please make your name holy, it means Jesus wants the name of the Lord to represent who he really is. Wonderful creator, abundant sustainer, merciful savior. Revelation 4.11 says it well. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power because you created all things and by your will they exist and have their being. You are worthy, Lord. Your name is worthy. And to show just how an important request it is to hallow God's name, he asked for the same thing but two different ways when he asked for his kingdom to come in verse 10 and asked for his will to be done. See, as God's kingdom comes near in the life of Jesus Christ, and we see it fleshed out in the Gospels, we see that, as Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Not my glory, but your name be glorified. And as the kingdom, as God's kingdom, where righteousness and justice and generosity reign, as as his will gets done on earth as it is in heaven, isn't he glorified? I mean, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Back in chapter five, he says, he takes these group of men who he's training to be disciples and he said, do such good works so that your father in heaven is glorified. So he's just telling them here in chapter six, pray to that end, pray to that end. I think we understand this uh, in a sense experientially in, in, in a way that 
we realize how far we are from this in our own lives, in our own world, isn't it? See, as our state and national governments, not just ours, but around the world, continue to run amok, we continue to look for a great leader, or in Bible's terms, a great king, someone who can lead us better. And if that ever happened, if someone could come along and galvanize the people, unify them for the betterment of everyone, what a name that person would have. Wouldn't his or her name be hallowed, be praised, be remembered, be marched and prayed to, if a person could do that? But the Bible is very clear that this world, in this world, that will never happen. That will never happen in this world. Revelation 21 and 22 is this great image of the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth coming down from above because it's only something new. It's only something new that can take care of the mess of this world. We can't bring up the kingdom to God. He can only bring it down. And indeed, that's what the New Testament is clear from start to finish, isn't it? That we must yearn for the new kingdom, for God to usher in his reign, and for him to appoint that king and show him to the world. And we know that king is King Jesus. So to pray the Lord's prayer here is to pray for God's plan to come to its completion. It's begun with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're awaiting the final work and the return of Jesus, whenever that may be. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and judge the world. We want judgment so that the world will be made righteous. So when you pray this part of the Lord's Prayer, you're asking for the end of the world to come so that it will be replaced by a much better one. Isn't that what we want? But the question is, as we compare our wants versus his wants, is that what we really want? Is your grip on this world loose enough that you can sincerely pray that prayer? Well, back to my question I asked a few minutes ago. What do you really want? I mean, really want? The kind of conversation your friends aren't around or are around and there's no one else around, no pretense, and you're just talking. The kind of question you say, boy, if I won that $500 million Powerball jackpot, this is what I would do, right? Because that's how our beliefs showcase themselves and what we actually do. I was never a car guy of much at all, didn't care, until I went out and visited my best friend from college this last December, and he just bought a Tesla, and I got to drive it. I can say I'm kind of a car guy now, and I really want a Tesla. Good luck, I know. I was never much impressed by nice big houses. I liked them. It never impressed me until I went out to Montana to speak at a church there and it spent a few days and I saw some amazing houses at the foot of mountains, log cabins like I'd never seen before. What do I want? What do you want? What will make you happy? What do you want to see above any, anything else in this world? Hopefully it's not as trite and banal as my cars or houses. Maybe it's a better body. If you just had a better body, boy, you'd be happy and things would go so much better. Or maybe a bit more altruistic about this question. You think, boy, I really had enough money. I wish I could support this great cause, this great charity that's close to your heart. See, the question though that the Lord's Prayer brings up is not really, should you and can you pray about this kind of thing? These, these true wants of your heart? 
The real issue the Lord's Prayer brought up for me this week and it unearthed in me is this. What are my deepest wants? Friends, prayer is a wonderful privilege to those in a true relationship with Jesus Christ on into the Father, that Christ brought you into the very throne room of God where you can call upon God and offer any request at any time about anything, casting all your anxieties upon him because you know he listens and he cares. But here Jesus showcases what a kingdom-minded Christian really wants. Back in chapter five it, five, it talks about Christians being salt and light. What do salt and light Christians really want? Well, the, Lord prayers, the Lord's prayer tells us. We want his name to be hallowed. We want his kingdom to come, his will to be done. So as we stand here in this room of mirrors, I don't think we can get out with some admission and some confession of how this worldly we actually are. As a whole, when I listen to prayers around the church, this is no offense to anybody in particular, when I listen to small group prayers and large group prayers and the prayer requests we get and I listen to prayers abounding in, I have to say that I see a dire lack of want in prayer requests for the great name of the Lord to be hallowed. And as individual prayers... I'll stand here confessing my own culpability in this. I see a grave similarity between my deepest wants, my deepest desires, and that, in the, and that of the rest of the world. Comfort, happiness, middle-class success for myself and my children. Do I really want what Jesus wants? Do my prayers reflect that? All right, the third angle. Our kingdom versus his kingdom, verses 11 through 15. You'll see there that if indeed verses nine and 10 are the sincere prayers and desires of your heart, then we actually should continue to pray that we're part of this. If we want this so desperately above anything and everything in the world, then our prayers would naturally, and the Lord Make me a part of this. Let me be part of this so I can help. And that's what verses 11 through 15, they're just reinforcing the same thing. Lord, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Let me be part of this. And so verse 11, the prayer to give us our daily bread, the time doesn't allow us to go into this kind of tricky little verse here. There are two main thoughts about what this means. The one is simply that we're just asking God to provide for our basic needs, food and water. And I think that's right and good and very fine to pray for. But I don't think in context of the Sermon on the Mount that this is actually what Jesus means. I think it means something more. Those of you who had the ESV or any Bible, there's probably a footnote there at the end of verse 11 that takes you down in your footnotes to actually give you the literal translation uh, of this little passage. And literally it says, give us today the bread for tomorrow. And this wording, this understanding takes us back to the deep roots of God's people in the Old Testament where the promises of tomorrow, the future, are what guided and motivated the Israelites in the wilderness and even once they got into the promised land. One author said it like this, could it be that to ask to be given today the bread for tomorrow is to ask for the blessings of the coming kingdom? 
Is it asking that we might receive the glories of the messianic feast to come? In light of very, this very strong focus of all the other requests on the coming of the kingdom of God in this prayer, it seems likely that this is indeed what Jesus is praying. This fourth request in verse 11, then, is another request for the kingdom of God. It expresses a longing for the bread and abundance of the next age, rather than the uncertain and, un- and fading wealth of this age, which is so prone to rust and mold and decay and theft. So we participate in this hallowing of God's name, the kingdom come, by asking God, Lord, give us the things we really need to hold on to that promise as you fulfill it. Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need the word of his promise, the bread of life to keep us going while we continue to live in this dark kingdom, awaiting his Well, we continue to ask God for help in in hallowing his name. And so we pray verse 12 and then on into verses 14 through 15 to back that up. Lord, please forgive us and help us to be forgiving people. Because if we're going to hallow his name, we have to first and foremost admit that the many, many times we don't hallow his name. The many, many times that I choose to glorify my name. The many, many times that I happily participate in this dark world trying to build my puny kingdom. So we must ask for forgiveness and also be forgiving people because there's no way that our desire for God's kingdom to come in can showcase itself in our lives if we're unforgiving people. That's the logic of uh, 14 and 15. As I said earlier, when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, we're praying, God, please bring your judgment. I want this rebellious, evil world to end and all those who defame your name to be stopped. But if I'm praying for judgment, then I must pray for my own forgiveness because as I just said, I have a complicit part of defaming his name, of being on the other side. And if I want to be part of this kingdom, I certainly want to love and want other people to be part of it as well. Philip Jensen says it this way. I think it's good contrast. He says, are you a mercy person or a justice person? A justice person spends his or her life hoping and wanting people get what they deserve. Of course, not completely, because in my experience, justice people don't see their own need for forgiveness. But you know a justice person when you hear it, when they say, well, I make mistakes, but it's those people. I don't live like those people at least. Or, well, I know I have my problems, but it's they're the reasons that we have the problems in this world. Small or large, everyone else contributes a great more deal to the problems of this world than I do. Different generation, different phase of life, different morals and values, it's all them. And so I hope they get what they would deserve. But if you're a mercy person, you'll get almost without explanation verses 12, 14, and 15. Once you come to grips with the gravity of your own sin and God's pardon of it, then you can't help be a mercy, but be a mercy person towards everyone and anyone around you. Thus, by the grace of God go I. This is the way of God's kingdom and justice is the way of our kingdom, supposed justice. Thank God he's a God of mercy. Let us be people of mercy as well.
And then we continue praying into verse 13, the last request. And this idea simply demonstrates the same thing we've been saying in a different way. If we want God's name to be hallowed, we won't want to continue in the evil of this kingdom and participating in the desires and wants of this kingdom because we know they'll fade away. They know they're worthless. So there's no, they're vanity, as the teacher tells us in Ecclesiastes. Lord, please help us not continue in our sin, our evil, our indifference towards you. By praying the request in verse 13, we're saying to God, God, Father, sin is so much ingrained in my life that I can't see it. And I am so helpless without your fatherly care to deal with it. Father, please help me. Lord, please let me not value sin in my life or in the world. Lead me away from evil and to yourself. Make your righteousness, make your kingdom so attractive that I desire it and want it more and more in this kingdom less and less. Perhaps some of you with gospel antennae, you're thinking, this is really just praying the gospel, isn't it? <laughs> Lord, please forgive me and make me more you-centered. That's a good gospel summary, isn't it? And that's what we're praying here in the Lord's Prayer. Take away my idolatry from my kingdom and give me a taste and a desire for living for your kingdom, Lord. So what do we do with the Lord's Prayer? I hope by now it's clear, at least something to do with it. In the very least, let the Lord's Prayer put you in the room of mirrors. It's a hard place to be. But God's forgiving. And not only forgiving, he promises to change us. Change us to be more like his son and change our prayers to be more like his son's prayer right here. And by all means, I encourage you, use the Lord's prayer. Pray it. Just make sure you know what you're praying and you sincerely believe it. It's not a set of magic words that you can say to get what you want out of God, unless the things that you really want out of God are, your will be done, your kingdom come, hallowed be your name. So may I encourage you, don't shy away from the Lord's prayer. If you pray it and you pray sincerely, you can offer up a simple 52-word prayer to God and be reminded of the gospel, his kingdom, and your role of living for it. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Praying the Lord's prayer is about praying the matters that really matter to us as Christians. It forces us outside of our attempts to build our own little kingdom. If just if everyone was healed in my life and everything went well and I had enough finances, everything would be okay. It forces me out of that devilish temptation to think that. And it forces me to pray things beyond the here and now, which I rarely do. See, praying the Lord's Prayer changes us bit by bit into the likeness of the Lord himself. And to that end, we can say, praise your holy name, dear Father. Thank you for teaching us. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you are a good and wonderful God that does not leave us where we are. Lord, thank you that you have quickened us to how much our desires, our prayers, our own little kingdom is so drastically different from yours.
Lord, grant us change. Grant us a hatred of evil and sin that so easily ensnares us. Grant us an eye that looks away from the temptations that so easily pull us in. Lord, make your name holy and wonderful and let us treasure you, your kingdom, your will above anything and everything you could possibly give us of this world. Lord, make your name known, not just in this room, but to everyone we're about to talk to this day and tomorrow and the time you've given us left. So that we, Lord, can truly and sincerely pray, hallowed be your name. It's in your son's name we do ask these things. Amen.